This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. What is a Christian? There's lots of ways that you can go about answering that question. For example, you could take the angle of talking about the content of a Christian's belief. So what is it that they forms their belief system? What do they trust in, right? That's one way of answering what is a a Christian. You could also talk about identity. Where do they belong? Where do they uh, sort of stake their claim out of, of what it is that they're a part of in this world? You could talk about a Christian's ethics or their purpose in life. How do they behave in the world? How do they see their calling or their vocation in the world? Any of those would be just fine ways to begin to try to answer that question, what is a Christian? But let me offer to you uh, what I think is a simple and foundational, if not complete, definition for a second. Uh, A Christian is someone who has experienced the love of God in such a way that they love God in return. A Christian is someone who has experienced the love of God in such a way that they love God in return. And one of the reasons I think that's a helpful or foundational, again, not complete, but a foundational uh, definition is how often in the Bible uh, the metaphor of marriage is used to describe our relationship to the living God. Jesus is described as the bridegroom and we are his bride. And so a Christian is someone who is loved by and is in love with Jesus Christ. But that's not the whole of the picture, is it? Because when you get married, uh, you don't just get your spouse, but you get their whole family too, right? It's part of the deal. Whether you know that going in or not, it's part of the the deal. I go to a a whole lot of weddings and often am asked to officiate, participate in weddings, uh, this being a young church like it is, I get to do a lot of these things. And so I also get a little bit of a window into uh, rehearsals and the parties associated, the whole festivities with the the wedding weekend and the ramp up to it. And so in those times, I get a little bit of a window into the family dynamics that are at play. And very often, you what you observe is it's super smooth and everybody's having a, a blast together and it seems like these two families are melding together in many different ways. 
But occasionally you can pick up on some tension. Usually it's, you know, hovering below the surface in somewhere or another, but it pops up and, you know, mother-in-law criticizing the bridesmaid's dresses or, uh, you know, there's a warning about a certain uncle who's not allowed to go near a microphone at the rehearsal dinner or something along those lines. Those little sort of underlying things that you can kind of pick up on. But then every once in a while... It's not the hidden underlying tension, but everything just blows up for everyone to see. Read a little bit from a story about a wedding in the United Kingdom that happened a few years ago. This is, I'll just read a bit. This is from the Guardian newspaper. Shane and Donna McLaughlin will never forget their wedding day. Neither will the 70 drunken guests at their reception or the 22 police called in to separate them when the party degenerated into a brawl. It's unclear who hit who first, but soon people were flipping tables, hurling chairs, breaking bottles. The fight involved young and old, women and children, and furniture being thrown across the dance floor. The bridegroom's mother, Tammy, passed out when she tried to intervene. Sergeant Paul Mogg, the first officer on the scene, said he found people brawling in the foyer. They were pushing, screaming, and shouting. The crowd seemed to be coming in on me. I was frightened for my safety. He called for backup, and police in in riot gear and tear gas eventually dispersed the crowd. The bride said, we had to cancel our honeymoon, and I cried myself to sleep on our wedding night. The whole thing was a nightmare. My husband tries to comfort me by saying that it was a wedding that no one will forget. (laughs) All right, I've never been to one like that. But it does illustrate, right? When you get married, you don't just get your spouse. You get the family too. It's a package deal. And that can be a great blessing. It can also be a tremendous challenge. And very often, it's both at once. A Christian is not just someone who is united to Jesus by faith, but a Christian is also united to the rest of God's family. We become a community, a community so close to God's purposes in the world that he refers to us as his body. We belong to him, and then we also belong to each other, and that can be a great blessing. It can also be a tremendous challenge, and very often it's both at once. This autumn, we're talking about community life. What does that mean to be a part of one body? If the pandemic has dismembered community life for many people, most people perhaps, how do we come back together? And Pastor Brian got us started on Romans 12 last week by looking at the first few verses. And really, Romans 12 to 16 is the Apostle Paul's most extended meditation on what it means to be in community together. He's writing to the church at Rome, and Paul is trying to hold together a rather diverse community of people, a community of Christians with different levels of maturity, differences in gifts, differences of opinion. How do we stay together as Christ's body on mission in the world? And we're going to talk about this in a lot of different ways over the next few months, but this morning, our text is going to give us a new way to think about ourselves first. A new way to think about each other, second. And then finally, an exhortation from Paul that we need to play our part, that we all need to jump in, we need to get in the game, so to speak. All right, so let's take a look at 
the passage that way this morning. Let's talk first uh, a new way to think about ourselves. Verse three, Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul says first, don't think too much of yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And in a culture of self-esteemism, this probably doesn't sound great. But this is good medicine, even if it doesn't taste good on the way down, because one of the sure ways to wreck a community is when you have individual parts valuing themselves too highly at the expense of the other parts and also at the expense of the whole body. And even maybe more foundationally than not thinking too much of yourself is not thinking of yourself too much. First question, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the the Presbyterian Catechism. The first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith is what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Notice how the self is displaced in that answer. We're not focused on ourselves. The chief end of man is not to focus on ourselves. It's not our glory, our desires, our needs, but the glory of God. Now, practically, you know the difference this perspective can make. Imagine, you know, walking into a room full of people. It could be community group, could be your workplace, could be a group of friends, could be uh, your neighborhood, right? Imagine you go into a room full of people and primarily you're thinking about you, right? What do they think of me? That's in the front of your consciousness. Uh, are they responding to me appropriately? Am I getting what I deserve here? Are people valuing me? Now, if that's your mentality, there's very little or possibly no room to be thinking about the glory of God. How would God use me here in this place? And also, not very much room or perhaps no room at all to be thinking about the others in the room. How does God want to use me in their life? What are their needs? How can I bless them? John the Baptist said, I must decrease. He must increase. Romans 12 here reminds us we're not that big of a deal. We need to be booted off the throne. Actually, I think one of the best things about team sports, for for kids in particular, is pretty quickly you learn that team matters more than you as an individual. And that's a lesson we need to learn and relearn even as we grow up as adults. Verse three, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned sober judgment, a sober appraisal of ourselves. Literally, it means uh, to think of yourself with accuracy, to think of yourself according to the truth. And Paul's going to go on here in a minute and talk about how we work together as members of one body. And this idea of a sober sober appraisal of yourself is important because as you think about yourself, we need to avoid uh, too high of an estimate or too low of an estimate because both of those things can be traps and obstacles and preventions from us really engaging and working within the context of the body of Christ, right? If you have too high of an estimate of yourself, you're always going to be thinking, aren't these folks lucky to have me, (laughs) right? Isn't the church lucky to have me with all my gifts and my talents and skills? Isn't God, you know, lucky to have me on the team, 
right? And if you're thinking that way, if that's an underlying assumption of yours, if that's your attitude, you're going to naturally undervalue the gifts of others and how much you need them, and you're also likely to just take yourself out of things when it gets difficult because you don't need them, right? You've got it all together. Too high of an estimate of yourself can wreck community life, but also, listen, too low of an estimate of yourself. You may also pull out of community because you'll think, what do I have to contribute here? Right? Do I really have anything that's significant or important to be a part of this community? And by the way, they probably won't miss me if I'm gone. Paul says we need a sober appraisal of ourselves. We need a new way to think about ourselves if we're going to be reconstituted into the body of Christ. But secondly, we need a new way to think about each other. Verse 4, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul says we need to embrace our unity. We are one body, one body in Christ. And the thing about bodies is, right, they are interconnected. The parts of the body are interconnected. If one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Yeah, I have a friend who hurt his hand recently, had surgery, has a big cast on his hands, and it's not just the hand itself and the tendons and everything else with the surgery that hurts, right? But the rest of his body, the rest of his self suffers as well. He can't type with this cast on his hand, so it's, uh, you know, largely voice to text all day long. He has one of those jobs where you have to do a lot of typing, so he's doing this all the time. He had to, I saw him, his wife had to help him put his mask on because uh, he couldn't get it around his ears, right? One part hurts, and the greater part of the body suffers. And this works with other things too, right? Imagine an orchestra. Everyone plays great, but the French horn is just awful, right? It's one part messes the whole performance up. Or football. Imagine a fourth quarter comeback. The defense gets a turnover. The quarterback drives them down the field for that last second winning field goal. And then the holder bobbles the snap, right? One part, the whole team takes the loss. We need each other, we're interconnected more than we realize. When you remove yourself from the church, when you don't jump in, when you don't participate, the whole body suffers. And the truth is, you suffer too, even if you don't think that in the moment. When one part is not working, the whole body suffers, but also the individual doesn't become who you're supposed to be if you eliminate yourself or disconnect yourself from the body as well. You know, many years ago, uh, two friends, um, both, both ladies, both women, uh, they were uh, with some other friends, a larger group of people, uh, at the pool. And uh, one of them, she was uh, adjusting the pool chair and, you know, getting ready to, you know, sort of sit out by the pool. She's adjusting. And this was one of these old uh, metal uh, pool chairs, and I, I don't know if it was rusty, but I imagine it being rusty. Just let's, let's make it rusty for the sake of the, the story. And uh, she's adjusting the pool chair, and as she's sort of putting it down, her finger's back there, and she adjusts, and the, and, and the sharp metal lops her finger clean off, right? And 
Some of you are having the appropriate reaction in this moment, right? Like shocked. That's, she was in shock. Her friends are freaking out. But there was one other friend, another girl that I know. She had a military background. She was cool as a cucumber in this moment. She goes up to the snack bar, gets a styrofoam cup of ice, goes and <laughs> collects the, you know, the dismembered finger, puts it in the ice, and they're off to the hospital. Finger saved, right? Pretty gross. Super awesome story, right? Here's the point, though. There is a point. Here's the point. If you came across a finger all by itself, what would be the most immediate and relevant question in that moment? The the most immediate question would be, whose is this, right? To which body does this belong? Because, and here's the point, you ready? Because disconnected from the body it's not useful. Disconnected from the body, that finger is worthless. It has no identity in and of itself. What gives meaning to the individual finger is its connection to the body. And listen to the way Eugene Peterson translates verses four and five of Romans chapter 12. He puts it this way. In this way, we are like the various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. But as a chopped off finger or cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? Paul says we need to embrace this interconnectedness, this interdependency. We need to embrace our unity. But then secondly, we need to embrace our diversity. We're one body, but with many members, many parts. And the truth is, God is much more creative than we are. Someone once said that when God freezes water, he gets all these gloriously different snowflakes, but when we freeze water, we just get boring old ice cubes. But God loves difference. He loves uniqueness. He cooks it into creation, but then he brings it out further as he distributes his gifts to his people. Everyone has different gifts. Nobody has them all, and so that means we need to value each other. It means we need to stop comparing ourselves, wishing that we had someone else's gifts, and it also means we shouldn't be trying to squeeze everyone else into our mold thinking that they should display the same passions or interests or giftings that we have. A few years ago, uh, my daughter Lucy and I read a book called The Fool of the World and the Flying Ship. Maybe you've heard me talk about this here before. It's a a Russian folktale and uh, been uh, retold by Arthur Ransom. And it's uh, a story about a rather unimpressive boy who the story calls the fool of the world. And everyone thinks he's kind of dumb, kind of simple. His uh, parents don't think a whole lot of him. They favor the two older brothers in the family who are more clever. And one day the king, the czar, says that if anyone can bring him a flying ship, then he gets to marry the king's daughter. And so the two older brothers, they set out on a quest. The parents are just sure that at least one of them will be successful. They give him a hero's send-off, big party, But the brothers go off and they're never heard from again. Time passes, and then the boy, the fool of the world, wants to give it a try. His parents tell him, you'll never be able to do it. You'll certainly fail 
Unlike with the other brothers, they don't give him a big party, a big send-off. They just send him out with some old bread and water. But he goes anyway on the quest. Very soon, the fool of the world encounters a beggarly old man. Though he just has that bread and water his parents send him with, he offers to share it with the man that night for dinner. And so the man is pleased, and somehow... Uh, the boy, when he opens the bag, it becomes this miraculously great feast. And the old beggar asks the boy what he's up to. Tells him about the quest for the flying ship and his hopes to marry the king's daughter. And they go to sleep that night. And the next morning, the boy wakes up. The beggar is gone, but nearby, he sees a flying ship. Well, without another thought, the fool of the world jumps into the ship and begins to fly toward the king's palace. Now, this is quite some distance, and so it takes some time. And along the way, he encounters various strange people. He meets a man who holds his head down to the ground, listening to the world, he says. Well, the boy thinks, this guy's probably crazy, but he says, you never know who you might need. And so he welcomes the man onto the ship. Then there's a guy who's hopping on one leg and he explains that if he puts his other leg down, he'll take giant steps and cross great distances. And again, the fool of the world thinks, this guy is nuts, but you never know who you might need. And so he asks him to jump in the ship with him. And this happens again and again. He meets all kinds of other people. Each time he invites them to join him on the ship, you never know who you might need. Finally, he gets to the palace. The king is impressed with a flying ship, but he's not sure he wants his daughter to marry the fool of the world. He felt sure, the king did, that it would be somebody a little more impressive. And so he says, okay, you can marry my daughter, but only if you complete all these quests. And when you know it, each quest he could never have completed all by himself. Each person that he brought aboard had some strange gift that made the completion of the quest possible. And that is the moral of the story. You never know who you might need along the way. And of course, in the end, he marries the princess and lives happily ever after. It is a folk story after all. But that's what the church is. Sometimes the church is even called the ship of fools. You never know who you might need along the way. Only God does, and he's the one who apportions his gifts, and he does so perfectly. So we need to have a new mind, a new understanding of ourselves in order to be in community together. We also need to have a new understanding of each other. But then finally in this passage, Paul gives us an exhortation to jump in, to get in the game. He says, starting in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. There is what you might call uh, gift-exalting which is what Paul is speaking against in verse three, right? Where we highlight our gifts or we exalt our gifts above others. And that's a problem, gift exalting. There's also gift envying, wishing that you had someone else's gifts. That's a problem. But then there's also gift withholding, not using your gifts, not deploying your gifts. And that's also a problem. You see, we all have gifts, gifts that differ, which means we all have something to contribute. And when you don't get involved, you don't offer your gifts at the table. You're actually robbing the church of something that God has given us to help us grow up to be who we're supposed to be, which means then that there should be zero unemployment in the church when it comes to serving, when it comes to volunteering, when it comes to deploying your gifts. Now, listen, that doesn't mean you can't switch roles. 
Doesn't mean uh, you can't take a break in a crazy season, but make sure that's what it is, a break and not the norm. In the summer, we went uh, kayaking. We were visiting my mom down in South Carolina, and so we went kayaking a little inlet river just off the, uh, the ocean. And Paige and Lucy were in one kayak, and Crosley and I were in the other kayak, and just, you know, five minutes into this journey, it became very clear that I was the only one really rowing in our boat. Paige noticed this as well, and she said, Crosley, uh, why, you know, why don't you help Daddy out a little bit? And he kept saying, I'm taking a break, Mom. <laughs> Finally, I was like, hey, man, can you take a break from your break and row a little bit? One of the realities in the last 18 months, one of the realities of the pandemic is that many of us just simply got out of the habit of serving regularly, and we need to rehabituate ourselves to the norm of contributing to the body of Christ in some way. We're all on this mission together. So whether it's with New City Kids or CityLink Center or serving in hospitality or hosting or leading a group, ESOL, coming to a workday, whatever it is, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's the exhortation. Then he illustrates a little bit of what this could look like. And so let's talk for a moment about the different kinds of gifts. Paul gives us a list of seven here, but there are other passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And if you look at all those other ones, all the gifts that are mentioned there, there are 17 or 18 different gifts, depending on how you sort of divvy them all up. But even that's not meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be illustrative. There are examples. The emphasis is on the great diversity of the way that God gifts his people. But let's just very quickly walk through the ones that Paul mentions here in Romans 12. He says, first, let us use them. If prophecy, this is verse six, in proportion to our faith. Now, sometimes the Bible talks about prophecy in terms of that biblical office of prophet, right? This unique calling of God. Now, I don't think any of us are going to be gifted in that way. None of you, by the way, if you didn't know this, are gonna get a book of the Bible named after you. I hate to disappoint you if you were hoping for such, but there are other ways that the term, a general sense in which the term prophecy is used. It means bringing God's truth to bear in a specific situation. And so if you have this gift, you can offer great insight on interpreting, applying God's word. You can bring God's word to bear on specific situations and challenges. You could speak truth in challenging or confusing situations. And if this is your gift, use it. Secondly, Paul says serving, right? If service in our serving, and the word there is diakonia, where we get the word for deacon. If you have a gift in this area, it means you probably love to help out and you probably prefer to do it behind the scenes. You delight in getting things done. You see such great satisfaction in making things happen. If this is your gift, use it. Thirdly, Paul says, to the one who teaches in his teaching. And the gift of teaching is not just that you love to talk or even that you love to stand up and talk in front of a lot of people. But if you have the gift of teaching, you not only can hold people's attention, but they actually learn from you. And you could probably have gotten some feedback about that if you have this gift. And there are lots of ways to deploy the gift of teaching. It's not just what pastors do. It can be as simple as getting a group of people together to study the Bible or teaching kids classes. If teaching is your gift, teach, use it. Next, Paul says, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, 
And this word gets translated a lot of different ways, sometimes encouraging, consoling, exhorting. The Greek word is parakaleo, which literally means to come alongside. Whenever I think of parakaleo, I think of the picture that's on the screen above me there. This is Derek Redmond and his father. Some of you remember this, 1992 Olympics. You know, Derek had trained for his track and field his whole life for the 400-meter race, trained his entire life. He's made it to the semifinals. The gun goes off, and just a few steps in, he tears his hamstring. Can you imagine the pain? And in tears, he begins to hop and try to limp his way to the finish line, but he's not gonna make it. He's gonna fall, and everybody watching on TV, and everybody in the stadium knows it. And just then, his dad races down out of the stands to come alongside him. Security tries to wave him off and instead he waves them off. This is my son. And he helps him cross the finish line. That's parakaleo. We're all called to it in some ways, but some of you are uniquely gifted in this. Coming alongside others, encouraging, counseling, helping, urging. If this is your gift, use it. To the one who contributes, Paul says, do so in generosity. Again, all of us are called to uh, the vocation of giving, the calling of giving out of the resources that God has given to us to the poor and to God's work in the world. But if you have the gift of giving, this excites you. You love deploying resources to benefit others. You don't have to be wealthy to have this. You just have to love to bless people. If this is your gift, Paul says, use it. Be a pace setter in generosity. Hold your stuff loosely and give generously. And then he says to the one who leads, do it with zeal. Again, we all have responsibilities of leadership in some ways, but if you have this gift, the gift of leadership, you have the unique grace of gathering and deploying people for God's mission. People want to follow you as you follow the Lord and, and God's calling in your life. And if this is your gift, Paul says, you have to do it with zeal. Some translations say you need to do it with diligence. And I wonder if Paul says that because he knows that leadership is hard. If you try to lead anyone, anywhere, there will be detractors, there will be critics, there will be discouragements. And so there will be the temptation to just throw up your arms and say, fine, you do it. Right, and just give up, move on. But Paul says, if this is your gift, use it. Do it with diligence. Do it with zeal. And then finally, he talks about acts of mercy. To the one who, has, who does acts of mercy, do so with cheerfulness. And this gift is folks who love to help the poor. They move toward the lonely and the marginalized. And I, as I look out here, even this morning, I see this gift in so many of you right? Moving toward hurt and pain rather than away from it. All gifts are, are useful, but this one I find particularly beautiful in, in your lives and in the life of this church. And Paul says, if this is your gift, do it with cheerfulness. The Greek word there for cheerfulness is actually, it's the word hilarion. It's where we get hilarious. Now, why does he say that? Because Paul knows if you spend any time at all moving toward hard cases, hard situations, hurting people, it is so easy to be discouraged. Sometimes folks will reject 
your help. There's lots of relapse. Sometimes the sheer heartache of the burden bearing feels like it's gonna crush you. And so Paul says, put on the spirit of a happy warrior and tear a little corner off of the darkness wherever and however you can. If this is your gift, use it. Well, how then do you discern? How then do you discover your spiritual gifts if you don't know where you're gifted? And actually, what's interesting is that, you know, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about that. Tim Keller has a, what I think is a helpful article that I'm gonna post for you and your community group leaders will have access to this week. He suggests that discerning your gifts, you can do so through three sets of what you may call diagnostic questions. First, he says you, you should ask questions of affinity of yourself. In other words, what needs do I naturally vibrate to? What interests me? What is my passion? That's one way to begin to discover your gift. Secondly, ask questions about ability. What am I good at? What do others say that I'm effective in? But then thirdly, ask questions of opportunity. What doors of service are open to me? What needs have I heard about? What needs to be done around here? If I'm connected to this people, what are, what are other people saying are, are needs that need to be met? And Tim Keller says that that third one is where you should start, needs of opportunity. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 12, also the Apostle Paul, also writing about gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So why does God give you a spiritual gift? Is it for your own enjoyment? No, not primarily. Is it for your own self-fulfillment? No, not primarily. Is it so that you can be the best you? No, not primarily, right? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, why? For the common good. So our first instinct when we're talking about gifts ought to be what needs to be done. Can I help? Can I give it a try? When we overguard, when we say, all right, I'm only gonna operate within my gifting, when we get too rigid about that, we make spiritual gifts more about us than about building up the body, the common good. So we're not really here digging for hidden gifts as much as we're digging for needs and then asking God, how can I help? Where can I jump in? And it's very often then that you actually begin to discover your gifts after you've begun to serve. One last thought here. What a powerful and beautiful thing when we call out the gifts of other people. When you let other people know what you see in them. When you let other people know the ways that they have blessed you. And in fact, I hope that that's one of, you know, if I had a goal for our community groups this year, one of those goals would be that that experience would be happening where people would be calling out the gifts of other people, where you could look at other people in your groups and say, uh, this is how you blessed me. This is a way uh, that you've helped me. And, and, and then hopefully other people are doing the same for you. And oh man, you know, do you know what a powerful thing this is, grownups, that you can do for children as well, to call out the gifts of kids? They wanna know what they're good at. They wanna know how God has gifted them. And like everyone else, they need help in seeing those things. So what a wonderful and powerful thing when you tell a child, hey, you're really good at that. You should do more of that. You should try more of these things because you're, you're really good at it. What a blessing that can be to call out the gifts of others. One body, many members, Paul says, having gifts 
that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. None of us have all the gifts, and therefore we need each other. But there was one person who perfectly manifests all of the spiritual gifts. You know, Jesus Christ was not just a prophet who spoke the word of God to the people, but he was the living word, perfectly embodying God's revelation to his people. And you know, no one served like Jesus did. Whether it was washing feet or healing lepers or feeding the hungry, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He was called rabbi, teacher, and the Bible tells us people were so amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority like none other. He exhorted and he encouraged. He called himself the helper, the paraclete, right? Same word as parakaleo, to come alongside. And he said, I'm going to, when I go away, I'm gonna send another helper, another paraclete to be with his people, the Holy Spirit. No one was more generous than Jesus. He descended from heaven in order to lay down his life, to pour himself out for us. He didn't just tithe his blood, but he gave all of himself so that we could be saved. And he still leads his church even today. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is, Paul says, the head of the church, which is his body. And Jesus was merciful. He moved toward others, toward the outcast, toward the sinner, or those in need of mercy. You know, we become a serving community when we respond to the way that Jesus has loved and served us. When we utilize our gifts for the good of the body in the way that he poured himself out and laid down his life for us. And so as we go to the Lord's Supper here in a moment, we're gonna consider the ways that the Lord has blessed us and laid down his life for us to fill us up so that then we can be sent out to be a blessing to lay our lives down for others. Would you pray with me? And then we're gonna come to the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we pray that you would multiply your gifts among us. We ask that you would work in us, even this morning, to equip us for all that you have in store for us. Would you make us a beautiful church on mission to celebrate Christ and to serve our city? We pray all this in Jesus' holy and beautiful name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.